Welcome back, everybody, to the Rumbling with Race podcast, where two educators from opposite ends of the spectrum of privilege discuss and embrace difficult conversations regarding race. My name is George Marshall. I am a high school athletic director, math two teacher, and head men's varsity basketball coach. My co-host is Bria Samuels. Uh, Bria is a 10th grade level dean and an English two teacher. Um, Bria, how's everything going? I know that we took a week hiatus last week. Everything is good. I've been relaxing. My trainer's been kicking my butt through COVID, so that is fun. Do How you, are you? Do you do the virtual like things? Mm-hmm. Oh wow, wow! How is that? How does that work? Like, is it? I mean, it is like not as it's not as great as like hands on because like I'm one of those people that need you to like truly walk me through what right. I'm supposed to be doing. I'm like, is my hand 45 degrees? Like I'm <laughs> that person. Um, but I I've known my trainer since I was a freshman in high school, um, and so nice. she'll like kick my butt through the screen. So I appreciate her. That's awesome. I have definitely had a newfound appreciation for physical fitness after like a three-year hiatus, so I'm very pleased to say that. Um, I am no longer in the mode of eat what you want and work out the way that you're supposed to, and everything will take care of itself, so I have grown (laughs) up in that way. Um, For the listeners who were unaware, um, I should have made it more clear last week, but the reason that we did not record was because... Last Thursday was actually my four-year anniversary with my wife. Um, she's incredible, uh, beautiful woman. I, I just have been really reflecting throughout quarantine about how blessed I am to have her in my life and to have two beautiful, healthy children, um, Trey Marshall and Charlotte Grace Marshall. And um, that's why we weren't able to record is because we were celebrating our anniversary. But we are back now. Um, really excited about today's episode. The entire focus is going to be surrounding the coronavirus, uh, specifically the pandemic and the impact that it's had on uh, communities of color and specifically the black community. Um, As educators, Bria and I have a pretty unique perspective on this, but Bria, why don't you start off with your thoughts and then we'll go from there. Um, So... Just thoughts in general, uh, I guess, with the coronavirus, it's been really interesting. Um, One, I think it's been really interesting to watch the coronavirus move while simultaneously like a civil rights movement happening in this country Mm -hmm. and seeing how those two have been like um, bumping heads. But I think like really get into the nitty gritty um, of where my focus is right now um, truly lies in the realm of like education, because I think that is what is most pressing right now for tons and tons of families out there. and the decisions that we're, we're making in regards to education, I think it, it's shining two really strong spotlights for me. Um, one of those spotlights is that we truly don't care about um, our minority people and that we truly don't care about our teachers um, because we're sending them back into, we're sending both of those groups back into places uh where it's almost like they're guinea pigs. Like, oh, let's see what happens if we put all these people back um, and do it. And the reason that I say that I, um, because one could argue, well, like white children are gonna go to school, that's gonna be different. That's that's true. Uh, and they're like, they're included in that. And the reason I didn't say that is I think about my experience um, 
going to school in Atlanta when I went to a predominantly black school and I went to a predominantly white school. Um, and so when I was going to that predominantly white um, high school in Atlanta and I think about like the precautions, like could we do COVID safely going to that school? Yes, right. like absolutely. Yes. Like there are 10 of us in the class. Of course we can. Mm -hmm. And then I think about the predominantly black school that I was going to and I'm like, no, the teacher stood on her desk because there were so many kids in the classroom. Like, and that's what we're trying to send people back to. And then it even gets further into like this, the, the disparities, like wage disparities and things like that. When you think about like, okay, if someone decided they wanted to like homeschool their child or get a, a teacher who's gonna work with them at home, that's gonna cost them money. Like that is money that our poor people, like poor people cannot, they can't do that. They don't have the luxury of saying that they're gonna keep their child home and they're gonna teach them themselves. They can't get off of work. They don't have the luxury of hiring someone else. So when you watch how like this is moving and I'm seeing, seeing some states do the right thing in this, seeing some states just kind of like saying, eh, have at it, um, we hope you don't get sick. Um, it's just been really, really interesting to watch. I wanna hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think that, you know, first of all, it's it's still baffling how poorly our government handled anything related to the coronavirus. Um, you know, I think that when we discuss President Trump, which we really haven't done at all, to be honest, throughout the course mm -hmm. of this podcast, um, not for fear of the discussion, but just it hasn't come up. Um, I think that People knew his stance in terms of freedom of speech and the Black Lives, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, um, how combative he is, you know, how much he, you know, leverages hate in terms of how he motivates people to vote for him and to, to earn voters, I guess, or to get voters, I guess you could say. But in terms of the coronavirus, I don't think anyone could have predicted that it would have been handled by his administration so poorly. Um, and so I do think that that's important to acknowledge this whole idea of like jamming, like we're forcing this sense of normalcy back on people. Mm -hmm. And that's what people want to do, specifically this presidential administration, is that it, it seems like every at every turn, someone is saying like, well, it's important for kids go, to go back to school. Well, why is that the case? Like, what evidence do you have that would say that? Like, we keep saying that like, you know, I've heard that, you know, if we test less, there'll be, you know, less, less positive, you know, coronavirus sets or whatever. Like there's just, there's so many examples of just really poor management of this situation. And what I think is often lost when you look at the news or you look at social media or you look at anything is this idea of how it affects students of color and how it affects uh, people who serve low income communities in general. I think that, you know, one of the things that when we talk about systematic racism, that's important for listeners to kind of follow along with. And it's something that I'm still wrapping my mind around is that, you know, when you think about an affluent family who maybe lives like, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes from where I live, if they had to go fully remote, they might have the means to do that fully successfully. Mm -hmm. And because of what their child had been exposed to throughout the course of their life, their skills, they may be 100% good to go and like, hey, I can rock and roll with this. I can do online classes. I can get my assignments turned in. I can do this, that, and the third, and everything is going to be fine. To be very candid, where Bria and I work, that's not the case. 
You know, there are some situations with families where sometimes children even need to work to help support the family in addition to now doing remote learning. Mm -hmm. What I will say is that I've been pleasantly surprised with the way that Roy Cooper has handled it as our governor, Governor Cooper. I think that he's said and done the right things. He probably, you know, whatever, whoever's in his corner is doing a good job with that, um, whatever circle he's surrounded himself with, which is great. But the problem is that when you come out and you say, let's do plan B as a hybrid of plan A and plan C, I think that he could have taken a much better stance in his most recent press conference. And I was a little disheartened by that. But what he did, which I thought, and what his administration did, which I thought was good, was allow for plan C to take place. Whether or not remote learning is going to be more accessible for people who are affluent versus people who come from low-income communities, Plan C, in terms of safety, in my opinion, is the right decision, at minimum for the time being. You can't take this situation more than month to month or week to week, and that's because we don't know where the numbers are going until people fully commit to the health and safety protocols that are outlined, which based on the way things are trending, doesn't seem like that's going to happen until there's a vaccine, which we don't know when that's going to happen. So I think that for those schools, specifically low-income schools who are providing opportunities for their students to learn remotely and doing it well, big shout out to you guys, because I think that that's the right decision. There's nothing more important than student safety. Like ultimately, this is a crapshoot anyway, right? Like we Mm -hmm. are in a position where like remote learning is never ideal. So now we've got to be able to figure out a way to help kids the best way that we can. And so to those schools that are doing that, big shout out to you guys and big props. Um, I think that listening to you talk, like you made me think of a ton of different things. Um, And I, I think the most pressing in my brain is it has been so amazing to me how COVID has really just shined this really, really bright light on like so many of the flaws within our like educational system and not just in like the school building system, not just in that, but like the way that we are preparing kids to be able to do things um, come a certain age or um, at a certain level in school. So I think to what you were saying, a second ago in regards to if you take a student from another neighborhood and like would they have the same ability to do things and you would think that having passed like by our system having them all passed to the same grade they would be able to do the same thing but it just shows that even at our most basic levels we are not providing kids an equal opportunity um and i think that 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 also just signs the light on like the fact that our schools are even more segregated than they like they're, they're they're so segregated and it makes it's just so sad when you think about like the fact that education is like something that people have fought for, like for generations and generations and generations of the ability, like how this was something, how education was always a tool um, or something that was kept from black people. So you think about slaves not being able to read um, and being punished for doing things like that. They, these are skills they didn't want them to have. And like, if you really think about it today, yes, we're providing our black and brown children with education, but we're not providing them with the same education or the opportunities that we're providing our white students. Um, and it's just, it's just crazy. Like when you think about like this, this same, like they're the same systems, but in no way are they alike. And they're working so differently for, for students. And it just, 
it's terrible. But like COVID really like shined a light on it. All, all of my friends from like the affluent high school I went to were like all of those students at that school were fine through remote learning. They had like no qualms, but of course they don't. They're sitting in their like $1.5 million home in Buckhead, like not worried about anything. Whereas like we have kids who like don't have homes. Like how are they going to do remote learning? They come to school for like this, this portion. That's yeah. crazy. There's no question about it. And one of the things that I think the flaws, the idea of the flaws that you mentioned is really important to me. I have a close friend. He was actually a groomsman in my wedding. His name's Levi Mogg. Uh, Levi is the executive director of TFA Idaho. And so one of the things, he's like super revolutionary and he listens to this podcast, I'm pretty sure. So Leaves, if you do listen to this, I'm not I'm not trying to call you out or anything. Um, I know you've got way worse stories about me, so I won't say anything about that or go there. But, you know, what he said, and I was talking to him recently, and one of the things that I just so much appreciated about him is how he just has a really good perspective on equity in the world. And what he said straight up was like, listen, we were totally ill-prepared to do this period as a country, to serve anyone, like let alone affluent versus low income, white versus black, whatever. Like if people are not right now tearing down the way that they're viewing how to teach kids in a way that's going to prepare them for the 21st century and totally building it up, then they're going to be dinosaurs. I mean, the people, and sadly, what is likely to be true is that people who are adjusting in affluent areas are going to further provide their students with opportunities that black and brown children likely will not receive, whether that's due to funding, whether that's due to, you know, any number of reasons. But, you know, I think that one of the other things that I think about a lot when it comes to the coronavirus is how, how drastic it is skewed against people of color. And so if you look at the data, there's just so many more people of color who are being diagnosed as either having had it, being asymptomatic with it, whatever the case may be. And you know, I was listening to First Take on ESPN the other day. And you know, when you talk about Stephen A. Smith, who's one of the you know, premier journalists in sports journalism, uh, I mean, he says it best when he just says, look, the, the white person's cold is the black person's coronavirus. So like your ability to treat things, even being from a certain area or having access to different healthcare, being from a certain mm -hmm. area or having a certain financial status or whatever, whatever, whatever. Like there's so many aspects to this that are just skewed against black people. Um, it's saddening and it's disheartening. And I think that that's what makes the situation with going back to school so frightening is it's like. Are you willing really to throw people who are already having all this stuff skewed against them into a position where they're still going to struggle? To me, it just seems totally screwed up. And again, I can't reiterate this enough. Like schools who are finding a way to go remote and take it month to month, like huge props to you guys, because I think that that is the smartest decision given the information that we have. Um, I think that that's really important to, to just to reiterate. No, I completely agree. I think to the question you just said, like that idea of, are you really willing to do this? Like 
put them in this position, but I, I think like the the when you look at like this particular um, presidential like grouping of people, like you just you see it. Like they are like the answer to that question is yes, yes they are willing to do that, yes they want to do that because it doesn't impact them. So why am I not going to continue to like put these people in a position like we've been doing it for centuries? Like of course I'm going to put you in that position again, and it's it's interesting because it can be so glaringly obvious that this is what it is like if I'm not mistaken at one point um Betty was saying something in regards to like not funding like threatening not to fund schools who like weren't going to send their kids back like you are literally going to take resources she is so out of sad. communities children so out of children's sad. hands God. because you don't because you want them to go back into a building where they are more likely to contract a disease right. now that we have no cure for that like but you would take their funding, like like we haven't already defunded schools to the bare bones. Right. Like like there isn't already a, an enormous gap between schools in affluent areas and schools in the hood. Like they called the high school that I went to my freshman year that was in my, my neighborhood school. I could walk to that school. They called it the prison. It did not have windows. Mm -hmm. How do you have this huge three, four story building in Atlanta that is a school for children that does not have windows, but has a gate around it that has spikes on top. And then you drive 15 minutes down the road to the school that I went to in an affluent area where we got salmon and steak for lunch. But you're going to defund the schools that are <laughs> like, it's, it's mind boggling to me, but like it doesn't affect them. So yeah. like, why not? The other thing that I find interesting within the whole coronavirus pandemic is the balance between that and the black lives matter movement. Um, you know, there's no question that like the stuff regarding Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery has kind of gone to the back burner now. And what you're seeing essentially is that like every time there's this major holiday, I was talking to Marvin Espinoza, who was the director of operations at our school earlier today. And we were just reflecting on like, how many freaking things does our country celebrate? Like, think about the number of holidays, right? It was like, we were sitting there thinking about this, like, is there a break in our country's calendar or holiday calendar where we could realistically like shut things down for a significant number of weeks and expect people not to do things? And the answer is no. Like, because like what you looked at throughout the course of it was like, well, say that you start in May, right? Well, there's these like virtual college graduations. And so like, of course, people are hanging out during those times. And then you get into, you know, June and then there's high school graduations and there's other things that are going on. And then you get to, you know, the situation with July 4th and that's coming up. And then you're starting back on back on campuses, if you will, or whatever the mm -hmm. case may be. Um, spring break was in there at some point, you know, like all these different things. It's just like, when do you get the six weeks to shut this down? And do you, how is it possible for people to just find it within themselves to do it? I feel like right now the country is too selfish to do it. And so what you're seeing as a result of that is enormous implications regarding education, regarding the safety of students, the safety of teachers, et cetera. 
you know, people wanting to be back to normal so that they can go back to their normal lives, their normal jobs, to be honest, in some cases, so that families have somewhere to send their kids so that they're not as home, they're not at home. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of the other things that has really impacted me as an athletic director is this idea of what's going to happen with sports. And so for me, what I find is so fascinating is for one, in the state of North Carolina, the High School Athletic Association has already come out and said that they're delaying the start of fall sports until September 1st. Definitely the right call. Um, You know, I think that that's a situation where they're prioritizing student safety while also trying to figure out a safe way for kids to play. So kind of preserving that if it's an option. But like Virginia has already canceled their fall sports. Like those players won't play football seasons, soccer seasons, anything like that, volleyball. And to be honest, I think one of the things that's really important specifically when it comes to uh, race is for our listeners to understand like the financial impacts of that decision, not as it pertains to both the financial and the emotional impacts. Let me start with the emotional. So emotionally, right? Like 95, 97, some crazy percentage of student athletes in high school are not going to play in college. They're just not like, let's just, let's call a spade a spade. That is what it is. Like that's, that's what it is. But the, for those students, that means that all of the memories that they would get from those seasons would then be taken from them. So whether it was high highs, low lows, whatever the case may be, which are things that, you know, as a student athlete, as someone who was involved in those type of things, like those are things that stick with you for the rest of your life. And I know that for you as a student athlete at Elon, like those are things you're going to remember forever. Those are friendships you're going to have forever. But let's stick more focus on this idea of how it impacts people financially. So say that you have a player, a basketball player, he's black, he comes from a one parent household. Um, And, you know, he's in a situation where he's really talented and he's really fighting for a scholarship to go to college, but the coronavirus happens. Well, now all of the opportunities that he would have to be seen are essentially removed from him in terms of college recruiting. And when you talk about a financial scholarship or an athletic scholarship, rather, just so people are clear, those can range near a quarter million dollars. Like these are enormous, enormous situations and opportunities for families who come through low income households, who are people who are growing up with single parent um, in single parent households, excuse me. And there's any number of data points that show that by going through college without debt, you're more likely to escape poverty. You're more likely to marry someone who also has a college degree. If you marry someone who also has a college degree, your kids are likely to go to college and have a college degree. And so suddenly without this level of debt, you're eradicating this cycle of poverty that could have existed for your family for generations. And all that right now is gone due to the coronavirus pandemic. And so like there are real struggles throughout schools, throughout healthcare, throughout, you know, just general opportunities that really negatively impact the black community right now. Um, And so I I just think that 
I don't know what made me think of that. Probably that's like, that's the coach side of me that came out a little bit because I know that like there are guys that I coach that that impacts and who I'm still fighting for. But, um, you know, that's kind of the biggest thing that is on my mind and is weighing heavy is like, what do you do? Like what's next? And I don't know that there's an answer to that question. No. And I think, um, and just to say this is, I don't want there to be a misconception that the thought on this at all is like, that is the only way, like, a right, 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 like right, that's, right. No that's not it. But like, I, I, I know people, like I grew up with people who were, were smart, were like really smart, really academically talented, but also like put their heart and soul into a sport. And yeah. one of the purposes was like to get to that, like to go, to keep going, to go to that next level. Like, a, a scholarship is a blessing. Like, as somebody who could not have afforded school without right. a scholarship, like was an independent foster child, freshly removed from like emancipated, like had no one, like I wouldn't have been able to afford it. Like, and you're exactly right. Like, I don't think people think about that aspect of it is that's truly taking like, and some of those kids are like right on that, the edge, like it could be between, between them and someone else. It could be that that one coach hasn't seen them and it's like nothing. Like, and I do want to point out, yeah, I do want to point out that like, I'm saying that from the perspective of a coach, obviously, Mm -hmm. like, again, I go back to the statistic I said, and again, that's an unofficial statistic, but the vast majority of high school athletes are playing the sport in high school as their last go around. And that's why emotionally, like all of those things are going to be taken from them. That's not something that's only specific to the black community. Mm -hmm. That's specific to all student athletes across the country. For the people who are struggling to be seen, I was only providing the other example as this like, like understand how important this is for families. Is it the only way to become successful? Of course not. Like that's a hundred percent incorrect. And if that's what people took from what I said, then you'd be wrong. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm, that's not what I was saying, but you know, it does hurt knowing that that's another level of the struggle that people have to go through right now during this time. Um, what do you see as like the next thing with this? Like, I think that's kind of, that's, that's what everyone wants to answer, but I, I just don't think you, there is an answer to it. I gotta be honest. I don't, I don't either. And I'm actually, I think that my hometown is a prime example of the fact that I think that, and this is a part of like being American. And as like someone who like, I'm very blessed and had just, to have been able to see other cultures um, and go be there. Like there is this selfishness to Americans that we don't even realize. Like we are so independent and within ourselves and about our own personal units that we tend, like we, we behave in ways that are like inherently selfish. And I say that I'm disappointed in my hometown for being a prime example of this. And so when I think about Atlanta in Atlanta, we saw them come out of phase one long ago, come out of phase two long ago. And people are out. I'm looking at my stories, you know, looking at all my friends back home. They're out partying at clubs, doing this. And we just see the COVID cases are just rising and rising in this city. And the reason I say I'm disappointed is the way that the, the, the administration handled it there to be very like, I love Keisha Lance Bottoms, but like it wasn't until she herself was infected with it. When she was infected with it, the next day we see that, oh, now um, masks are mandated. 
And until she was affected with it, they were like, oh, now we're moving back to phase one. So it was this almost like we're bringing in so much revenue to this city and like people are lively and we're acting like normalcy is happening again. But like in reality, everyone's catching COVID and now you have COVID and now you're like, uh oh, now everyone has to go back in the house. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is how so much of our like country is like, and there are some places again that are doing this really, really well. But there are so many places that are like, let's go back to making money. Let's go back to doing this. Let's go back to doing, like, until we get out of like that mindset of like this very like in the moment instant gratification kind of thing and like sit our asses in the house for a couple of weeks. Then like I, I don't see I don't see the rates getting better. I'm really afraid of the fact that Trump is now having all of the data be sent to them and not through the CDC anymore. I'm really afraid of what those numbers are going to actually look like, like uh, versus what we're going to yeah. see. Um, so it's nerve wracking because I think that our, our country is unfortunately so money hungry and not people centered that we're going to continue to yep. put ourselves in this predicament. And as educators, it's really, really concerning because I want to be back in the building with my kids. There's like, don't get us wrong in us saying that we think that like virtual is like option C is really good because we want to be back with our kids. I miss my kids. I want to hug my kids. I want to see my kids. I like teaching in front of them, but we're not. If we continue on the path that we're on right now, right, it is not going to be safe mm-hmm. for me to see my kids. It's and, just not. Yeah, and it's not necessarily about the the immediate like, oh, well, here's like us being in front of kids and whatever. It's like the long, it's the trickle down effect, right? Like I'm so fascinated in what's the five year effect of the coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's something that you can't think about or predict now and like I'm sure that there are some predictions out there which are based in data and science which is something to look into but like you know if one of our kids gets sick he comes to school gets another student sick they bring it home let alone being around teachers they bring it home they have a family member who's immunocompromised they get sick like that's the nightmarish scenario mm-hmm. that I think is important for listeners to be aware of and just for anyone to be aware of. It's like, that's the thing that is so challenging. And then I think on the flip side of that, and you mentioned this before, there's this huge, like there's a need to work. I mean, I've talked to families at our school where it's like, I can't not work. Like it's not an option. Like it's not an option for my family. Um, And I get that. And I think that that's kind of the two-edged sword, which is Mm -hmm. the big problem. And I do think that to your point earlier, that is skewed towards low-income minority communities. And I think that, again, that speaks to kind of the cyclical nature of why this is such a challenge for the Black community in general. And, Mm -hmm. you know, why our thoughts and prayers are with you guys who are going through that and, you know, how much I respect and admire you for doing whatever you need to for your family. Just we ask, please, everyone, like, do your part, like, just wear a freaking mask. I know I'm not at my word of the week yet, but like, for goodness sake, like, it's really not that difficult. It's not a political thing. It's like, people get so offended when they're told to do something. And like, I was just never raised to think that way. Like, that just wasn't in like, it's not in my thought process. It's like, oh, this makes, you know what I mean? It's like, if you're choosing to see this as like an affront on your freedom or an affront on like your own independence, like this is a time where, and you said this before, like just think about others. You get more out of that in your life anyway. Um, 
And I think that it's really important right now because especially for people who want a school year, for people who want kids in schools, for people who want normal jobs and the economy to get back to the place that it was, for people who want sports, like high schools can't do the bubble like the NBA. Are you serious? Like they spent, you know, nearly a billion dollars on that, like on that project. They, we can't do like, who, are you kidding? <laughs> like if you want all of those things, then there are going to need to be sacrifices made in order to be safe and healthy. Um, so I'm hoping that people can take away from that what they need to, but um, you know, I'm rocking my mask. I rock my mask in school, even when I'm, even when it's just me, not alone in my classroom, of course, but you know what I'm saying? Anytime I'm around others. Um, let's finish up with the word of the week. So what do you got for this week? My word of the week is don't forget. Um, and so what I mean by that is you alluded to this in this conversation. And right now, especially as an educator, I can even see this in myself is I've been so focused on COVID education, what that means for kids, what that means for teachers is that Breonna Taylor wasn't in the forefront of my head anymore. And Elijah McClain wasn't in the forefront of my head. Tony McDade weren't in the forefront of my head. And like all of these other things are continuing to happen. And I want us to remember that even with these things going on, like these things are happening simultaneously. They compound upon each other um, as they go. And like, we have to remember that this is still a system that needs to be fixed. And these are still, um, Breonna Taylor's murderers are still free. Only one of them has been fired. Um, and she is such a clear cut case. And yet they're calling it a clerical error. You cannot shoot someone. You cannot murder someone and call it a clerical error. Um, and so, I really want to push people as we're going is like, you got to remember like the fight is not over. This is going to be long. It is going to be hard. It is going to be tiring. Um, it is going to be tedious sometimes, um, but it is so, so important. Um, and we got to, uh, you know, we got to arrest Breonna Taylor's murderers. That's where I'm at with it now. I mean, and you, we've already had a big conversation on this. I appreciate you bringing that up, but like that should have been happened. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just to bring up before I jump in, there was a Shannon Sharp is a former NFL player and he had a great I, I know I sent you that. But this idea of like you're getting wrapped up in this Jada and Will thing with entanglement and you're getting wrapped up with the like, can we stay focused? Mm -hmm. Not the, can the black. That's not what he's saying, like in terms of the black community as the whole world, as the community fighting for Black Lives Matter. Can we stay mm -hmm. focused? White, black, Asian, Hispanic, everyone who's who's following that and who's doing such a good job with it. Um, I agree. Now that's more important than ever. This kind of builds on that. My word of the week is a shout out for Kawhi Leonard. Um, for people who don't know Kawhi Leonard, um, multi-time NBA finals champion, multi-time NBA finals MVP. Uh, he plays for the Los Angeles Clippers right now. Um, and you know, I, like I'm a big NBA fan, like basketball is my jam. I'm a big, I'm big into the NBA. Um, you know, God help me because I'm a Wizards fan and that's led to, you know, any number of years of heartache for the last ever. I'm still like John Wall and Bradley Beal are my dudes. So like I'm going to ride or die with them for the longest. But, you know, the NBA, I think that it's important to acknowledge that the majority, the vast majority, I believe 85 percent of the league is black. Uh, Adam Silver, the commissioner, has done a very good job throughout the course of time with the NBA about emphasizing social justice, 
They have incredible advocates for the Black Lives Matter movement, whether that be Chris Paul, LeBron, all these types of guys who do such a great job about using their platform. And one of the things that the NBA is doing is that they're putting Black Lives Matter on the court at the bubble, which obviously, in, you know, in a way to show solidarity, but they're also allowing people to put messages on the back of their uniforms. This is where I feel the NBA has missed the mark. Because they gave the players, and I'm looking at the list right now, a set list of phrases or sayings or words that they could put on their uniforms. So some of them, and there are some powerful ones, many white players will put Black Lives Matter on the back of their uniforms. That's a powerful thing coming from a white player for sure. But they were not allowed to put the names of any people who are murdered at the hands of police. And the WNBA was. And Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James and a number of other players decided that they were going to just put their name on the back of their uniform. Just um, Leonard is going to be on the back of Kawhi's uniform for his last name. And they asked him why. And he said, for those people who don't know him, like he's just <laughs> such a blunt guy. Like he's got so many hilarious memes and all these things about him. He's one of my favorite players because I he's out of business <laughs> and you know he's quiet and reserved, but he's a killer. And what he essentially said was, "Look, like the name on the you putting a phrase on the back of your uniform doesn't mean anything. It's about doing the work." And I so much appreciated that comment from him. Because I do think, and I disagree with him slightly, that I do think that there is some value in certain phrases being shared on the back of NBA uniforms, especially with so many people who are going to be watching that because Lord knows it's going to be the only thing interesting on television athletically for a while. But I appreciate him saying that because it does reground us in this idea that we got to continue to do the work. You can't duck a conversation because a phrase is on the back of a uniform or on a basketball court. You can't, you know, hide away from your own insecurities and biases because you said that, you know, oh, I watched that game and I saw that happen or this or that. You know, ultimately, I appreciate the stars of the NBA for coming out and saying that because I think that there's real power and validity in that. And from there, for them to come out and say that, I think is going to really resonate with you know, younger generations and people who are looking up to them. Um, but I think that that was something that I wanted to bring up and address. One cool one that I did see was that Jimmy Butler, he's another one of my favorite players, plays for the Miami Heat, another guy who's just rugged, guard, really tough player. He's not going to have anything on the back of his uniform. And when the reporters asked him why, he said, because if I wasn't a basketball player, I fear that's how the world would see me as nothing. And the power to be able to say something like that, I think, was so real. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it's kind of a mixed bag with the NBA right now. But I did want to shout out Kawhi because I think he's doing, you know, he he's a guy that that doesn't surprise me. That was his stance. But I, I understand and that that stance resonated with me a lot. Cool. Well. We are going to be heading out here in a minute, guys, but I do want to thank all of our listeners again. Um, we appreciate you for sticking with us throughout the course of the last week. Um, we're going to continue to do these on a weekly basis. And actually, Bria and I are going to be 
uh, able to do that a bit more because we're going to be back um, for our school year and our uh, professional development coming up in the next couple weeks. But um, continue to look out for us. Um, as always, we love you. We appreciate you. And we see you. We Thank you guys so America, much for joining us. We are. Sweet baby Jesus.